We have just read again the, the record of the, the crucifixion of the Lord there in, in Luke 23. And we have a serious responsibility, each one of us, to remember what he did for us. That if, if somebody, for example, had physically died for us, we would, without question, remember that regularly. It would be etched in our memories and uh, we would cons- constantly come back to it and circle around in life, but always come back to that. And it is the same, should be the same, in fact it should be far more profound than that, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And because of that, we therefore will live eternally. We who otherwise should die, we who who are sinners, we who have failed in so many ways. And so throughout the teaching of Jesus, he keeps himself circling back to this theme of, of his own death, and how really we are to carry that cross. And of course, in the first century, this would have been a most unpalatable sort of idea, that the idea of a criminal's last walk, that that is your life. Wait a minute, no thanks, that's not what I want. But that is what we are asked to to rise up to. And I think in our preaching of the Gospel, that is the message, because... It can too often be the case that somebody comes to the point of baptism because they have ticked all the boxes on a set of theological beliefs, all of which may be true and accurate, and they may have jettisoned wrong beliefs, quite rightly. But when it comes to a sort of a devotional level and what this means in practice, to agree to follow Christ is to agree to pick up his cross and follow him. And so here in all the uh, accounts of the crucifixion in the Gospels, we have really the description of you and me, of what really, in the end, we must be willing to go through. The fact we may fail, the fact that in his grace and mercy, the Father and also, I suppose, the Lord Jesus himself, maybe don't call us to go through what he went through, does not mean that in essence we are not to go through it. And I, I think that really the, uh, the mystery, the, the, the key, I suppose, to spiritual life is to be able to see him there and us here today in the 21st century and to see points of continuity, lines of connection, that everything that he suffered there and then is in a sense what we are in essence suffering today. And therefore we can learn with Paul that our lives are being set up so that we might fill up that which is still lacking in our fellowshipping of the sufferings of Christ. Paul implies when he says that, that the hand of providence is there at work in our lives, kind of preparing us bit by bit so that we will be able to to share in those crucifixion sufferings. And therefore, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. And so, we're just going to go through some, just some points of what is recorded here in, in Luke's record, and just reflect upon them. Now, what we want to do by reflecting upon them is not only to, to get a little bit more insight into the Lord whom we love, what he actually did for us, but also, as I say, to try to discern, and only you and I can do this in our own lives and our own minds, uh, but to try to discern 
how the essence of what he went through there is in fact being repeated in our lives today. Now, verse 27 of uh, Luke 23 here. Uh, Jesus turned and spoke to, to those women. They bewailed and lamented him, <clears throat> verse 28, and Jesus turned and spoke to them. Now Luke, as a doctor, I think realizes that suffering makes, makes people very self-centered. And yet the way throughout the account of the crucifixion that the Lord Jesus looked out of his own sufferings and interacted with others is, is amazing. It's Luke who reports the Lord's Prayer for Simon Peter um, in the, yesterday's chapter, Luke 22. Uh, it's Luke who records this sort of sympathetic warning to the woman of Jerusalem. Uh, and it's Luke who speaks uh, of how Jesus interacted with, with the thief when breathing in that crucified uh, situation that was so difficult, let alone, let alone speaking. And yet, <clears throat> in all these things, Jesus looked out of his own immediate pain and suffering to connect with others. And how does that translate from, as it were, one language to another? How does that translate from a day in April, a Friday afternoon, on a hill just outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? How does that translate into 21st century living? How does that translate into your life? into mine, into our unique set of circumstance that we have, and our unique personality and the rest of it. Well, whatever age we have lived in, and whatever situation we are in, and whatever technological situation we're in, whatever social or financial situation we're in, one common feature of all of us is a tendency, I think, to retreat into ourselves there is, I think, nobody who is truly extrovert. It's, uh, it, it may appear that some are more extrovert and find it easier to make conversation than others, and that is so, but I think in our essential being, we all tend inwards and not outwards. We've been hurt. The most extrovert of people have been hurt, just like the most introverted. And the real self has a tendency, I think, to, to hide within, maybe sort of covering who we really are with a, <clears throat> a load of extrovert behavior in, in some cases. And <clears throat> we all have a, a tendency, I think, not to communicate because it requires a lot from us. We have a tendency to circle in our minds always upon our own suffering. I am doing this because I've got a hard life, because this, because I'm sorry for myself and nobody else's. And yet you see Jesus there, in the worst possible situation, mentally, psychologically, in every way, and of course physically, uh, looking out of himself to others. And I, you know, I salute him, really, for the, for the way that he, he did that. And when he makes this comment there in 30... 31, if they do these things in the green tree, or to a green tree, what shall be done in the dry, or to the dry? Uh, and that is, that little phrase there, it is packed with allusion to at least, as I see it, four Old Testament scriptures. And he does that, I think, to, to basically <clears throat> make the point, if I am the, I am the green tree, of Ezekiel 17, 24, 
Jeremiah 11:16, Jeremiah 17:5 to 8. And you, Israel, are the dry tree. And if I am the green tree of Psalm 1, who has fed on God's word, and this is what is being done to me, whatever is going to happen to you. And it's not easy to read the Bible when you are under a lot of physical physical pain and, and stress or distraction by a situation. And yet Jesus here is intensely aware of God's word. Now I'm not saying that Bible reading equals salvation or equals being a, a good bloke or being spiritually strong. It doesn't, you know, the, the equation is not so primitive. It's not, not, not just direct like that. But all the same, here Jesus was tempted, I suppose, to, to just think, well, I must be perfect, I mustn't sin. Look, look, just for the moment, for the next couple of hours, the next day or so, I must just focus on myself in case I sin for the, for the sake of all of humanity. But he wasn't even like that. He looked out of himself, and that is, I suppose, part of being perfect, to always look out to others and to somehow hold on consciously to the things of God's word. In passing, I said there that um, this uh, reference to, to the drying up of the, uh, of the green tree, uh, uh, etc., may have been picking up uh, Ezekiel 17, verse 24, which talks about, I have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. And as far as I can see it, there is only one other New Testament allusion to that, and that's in Luke 1.52, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, quotes that verse uh, and by saying that she is the one who has been made low, who has been exalted, and those who are high shall be brought down. Now, what do you think of this? I submit, and it is, you call it speculation, but I'll put it to you, that there was Mary, illiterate, I would assume, barefoot and pregnant, going around the house and after her, uh, the birth of Jesus as well, singing her song. Singing her song that's recorded there in, in Luke 1. And Jesus, growing up, would have listened to his mother singing her song, in which she alluded to Ezekiel 17:24. And he, 33 years later, or let's say he remembered this from early childhood, let's say 30 years later, there he is, crucified, and he's alluding to the same scripture. I see there a tremendous encouragement to, to mothers and the influence they have on the children, all of us, the influence we have on, on others is far greater than we think. And to think that even the Son of God could be so influenced by his mother I find that uh, quite profound and quite quite sublime in its, uh, in its beauty and, it, and in its encouragement that we have huge influence on others. And what you talk to young people, little people, has maybe eternal consequence, as it did, in a sense, with, with Jesus. And so we come then to verse 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now you're probably aware that Jesus said seven things from the cross. And if you go through those seven things chronologically and note down how many words are used in the Greek, 
you see that this phrase is the longest. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do is 12 words. The next thing he says is, again in Luke in 43, Truly I say unto you today, or truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Nine words. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. It's four words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is actually three words in the Greek. I thirst is one word. It is finished is one word. And then the seventh saying, again here in Luke, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, is eight words. So you see the number of words declining as he goes through these last uh, minutes of his life. Now, when we talked uh, about, uh, I believe it's uh, in the study we did in, in Mark, Mark 15, or the crucifixion in Mark, I suggested that there was on the, uh, the upright of the cross a, a kind of a seat. And Pilate was amazed that Jesus died so quickly because normally people lasted a couple of days because the victim had the opportunity to push back a bit on this, what was called a sedile, this, this kind of uh, seat um, that was there where they could sort of push their, their weight back a bit uh, and to get some temporary relief so that the blood uh, that had all drained down into the bottom half of the body could sort of get back up into the upper half. Because if you just suspend a person by their hands, as it was a common form of, uh, of death in, uh, in Japan at, at one stage, blood pressure um, goes right down and um, pulse rate goes right up. You can't actually survive like that for more than a few hours. And breathing will get absolutely impossible. Now, it seems to me that Jesus took the hardest way. That's why he refused the painkiller. He died even the death of the cross to attain that great salvation, such great salvation for us, as if there's a kind of a, a quality attached to it. And he attained the, the highest possible level. Now, it would therefore be so that breathing would have been extremely painful. And every word he said would have been a huge effort. Again, I would have been inclined to think, look, I just can't speak for the moment. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I am, after all, dying for the sins of the world. Um, you know, it's all going to be okay in a few hours, but let me just get through it, please. But as I say, part of being perfect is to communicate, is to be outgoing, is in a sense to preach, which is what in a sense he was doing, and to comfort, which is what I think he was doing to his mother and, uh, and uh, to, to, to the thief. So then, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, who is this spoken to? This is the big uh, question. Well, let's um, first of all just note that he said this, it seems, uh, under, great, under great pressure, under great, uh, great difficulty of speaking. And I think, therefore, he specifically said it because there was a purpose in it and he wanted us to, to hear those words. And let's try and sort out by elimination who he was not praying for, and then we come, I think, closer to thinking of who he was praying for. Well, was he praying for the Roman soldiers? I don't think so. 
because it would be rather like seeing a bunch of youths vandalising a bus shelter and then praying to God, hey, God, please forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. No, I mean, the whole Bible record really teaches us that each of us must ultimately stand and be judged for our own sins. Plus, it is repeatedly taught throughout the Law of Moses that ignorance is not actually a basis for salvation or for forgiveness. This is the whole point of the guilt offering, of recognizing that I have sinned, although I may not realize wherein I have sinned, but I am sure I have. Apart from that, it is not the Romans who ultimately, I think, were held accountable. It is really the, the Jews. I mean, in Acts 2.23, you, Jews, by wicked hands, crucified the Son of God. So, I think that the Romans were the, uh, the mechanism, but it would be facile to sort of blame them or the... Uh, Italian nation for crucifying Jesus. Biblically, particularly in Peter's speeches and Acts, the Jews are held res responsible. So then was it the Jews? Forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, I don't think they were ignorant. And in that was the whole sin of what they did. Matthew twenty-one thirty-eight. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Now, Jesus said it in John seven twenty seven and 28, um, where they, they start off by saying, you know, you're basically not Messiah like you reckon. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, you both know me, and you know whence I am. And that's, I think, one of his allusions to the memorial name, I am. I think he, he's saying, you know who I am. You do know deep inside that I am he, but you won't face up to your conscience about it. And whenever in John's Gospel, John talks about knowing Christ, he means recognizing him uh, as the Son of God. And Jesus says, you both know me and you know from whence I came or from whence I am. Now, it does seem to me that they knew, therefore, who he was. Also, if Jesus was praying for the forgiveness of the Jewish nation because they were ignorant, which as I've said, I don't believe they were. I believe this was um, really a bit like the, the brothers coming in front of Joseph. I think they kind of did know it was Joseph, but sorry, I strayed off theme there. Um, if Jesus was praying for the, the whole Jewish nation, well, it kind of wasn't answered. Because you only have to look at the tragic history of Israel, and there is, there is no question. This is a nation with blood on their hands. And as you know from my own background, I am the last person to be anti-Semitic, um, or anti-Jewish, uh, more correctly. But uh, what, what I'm saying is that in no way, in, in no way, really, was that prayer heard. So then, who is it? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Acts 3, 17 and 19, Peter appeals for people, and it happened to be Jewish people, but uh, he, he appeals to the people to repent. He says there, brethren, through or in ignorance you did it, 
Repent therefore. Paul seems to say the same. Acts 13, 26, 27. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, uh, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Now, he's saying, they're both saying, repent. Because you did this in ignorance. Not, I think, meaning you didn't know what you did, because I've given reason to think that they did. But in ignorance in the sense that you had not accepted him. But now, repent therefore. I don't think that Jesus praying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do, uh, somehow means that ignorance plus Christ's prayer equals forgiveness. I don't see that that is an equation that's uh, got any real basis uh, within the Bible. So I think, therefore, that this group of people that the Lord had in mind were all of us who were then sinners, that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul says in Romans. That in one sense we were all standing around there, uh, and he died for us while we were sinners, while we were unbelievers. And yet his death was presented by him as a guilt offering. Forgive them, for they know what they do, uh, for they know not what they do, sounds as if Jesus feels that he's offering the offering for ignorance. But the offering for ignorance only really had, uh, had power when a person confessed it, when a person said, look, I know I have sinned. And I, now, sometime later, I realize the sin that I did back then. And I know that it still needs atonement, that time has not worked a kind of pseudo-atonement, and so I offer for that. Now, if you've followed what I'm saying here, the death of Jesus then was a guilt offering. Isaiah 53.10 in the NIV actually calls his death there a guilt offering. Um, it follows then that we must repent. He made the guilt offering and he prefaced it as it were with those words. Forgive them, for they don't know what they do, for they're ignorant. And therefore, as Acts 3 says, repent ye therefore, because of that. The fact that he died for our sins before we had even recognized them means that now we do recognize them we can as it were make use of that guilt offering by our repentance and we as it were put our hands on the cross of Jesus as we physically I think symbolize that kind of thing in our taking of bread and wine that this is for me and I identify with it so then there is then a huge uh, sense in which Jesus was aware of us as he died and he knew that although we had not repented then we as it were were yet sinners when Christ died for the ungodly yet he believed that there would be a group of people who would confess and repent and his offering would as it were be as a guilt offering for them and again I see the connection between the death of Christ and an appeal for us to examine ourselves and to repent. And that is why, okay, you examine yourself to make sure you're thinking about the death of Jesus, but you also inevitably examine yourself 
just it's part and parcel of the same process uh, to to perceive your your sins your our sins are elicited by our reflection upon him there and that is the essence of personally breaking bread and that's why it's so so personal in one sense it is also a collective statement but it is also highly personal his death there as the guilt offering for those who were ignorant elicits in us as it were a coming out of ignorance a confession of sin and a, a grateful laying of our hands upon him there just a couple more thoughts really um, from the, uh, the final saying of Jesus um, Father into your hands I commend my spirit from verse 46 now I said at the beginning of our talk that this was the last saying that he said on the cross and that the number of Greek words that are used decreases until this last one which has eight uh, words it's as if this was said with a, a special uh, effort now I think also that Jesus expired, he breathed his last in the form of those words. So he had his lungs full with what he knew was his last breath. And he breathed that out in the form of those words. So it was as if he had that last breath in the lungs and he breathed it out by saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And that was it. So the last word was spirit. Um, Jesus died as an act of the will this is really emphasized he says no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of myself Uh, and that word for to lay down is exactly that which is used here to commend I give over I lay down my spirit Jesus gave his flesh for us as he took the bread and broke it and handed it out and poured out the wine this he would have done this I mean very deftly um, with, with, with huge meaning of course attached to it from his point of view though probably the others didn't quite get it but he's saying you know this is what I am doing to myself I am pouring out my own blood I am breaking as it were giving sharing my own body not, not, not physically breaking it up into little pieces as it were but, but giving it uh, of myself Isaiah 53.12 he poured out his soul unto death this again it's a conscious act he obeyed the command to die on the cross Philippians 2.8 greater love has no man than this than that a man lay down give over, commend his life for his friends all the time it's not taken from him he gave it of himself now most people die in the final moments as it were against their own volition it's just how we are born from struggling babies we take that with us it's etched into our structure of our nature I think to, to, to try to survive it's sort of how we are uh, there's a, a poem by Dallin Thomas where he, he talks about dying men uh, go not gentle into that good night but rage rage against the dying of the light and that is how it is but Jesus 
rose above that, that basic human animal desire for self-preservation, and somehow he had control over that last moment of his death, because he gave his life. Now, in all that you see a, a very uh, intense level of conscious self-control. And what is scary is that these same words for giving over, commending, laying down life, are picked up and used in the later New Testament about us. You know, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself, same word, for it. As he uh, consciously breathed out his last, that is the love of husband for wife in Christian marriage. And wow, what a standard. What a standard. And the very height of the ideal. Even though we may not, of course we do not uh, attain it, the very height of the ideal, I think of itself, is, is hugely motivational, inspirational, that we should rise above the very, very narrow limits and frames that most people live within uh, to something so different. Again, it's used that, that word is used in, in John's letter, you know, first of John, where he says that we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren as Christ laid down his life for us. We also should do this. And as he breathed out his last breath to the, uh, I guess, to the, the, the watching crowd, uh, with people like Peter hidden away in it, because he says in his letter he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, uh, and maybe John and Mary, who I'm sure were hanging around somewhere in the crowd after they'd walked away from the cross, uh, to those weak believers which is just every one of us. He has poured out and given out, breathed his last spirit, so that his spirit might be in us. Now, in these things, you know, this is where the Son of God there, and you and me tonight, start to come together. Because his spirit of, of self-control, of, of giving out of his life, not having anyone take it from him, but giving it of himself. This is played out, you know, thousands of times a week in, in married life. If it's lived after the pattern of the love of Jesus for us. This is played out thousands of times in our lives. To lay down our life for the brethren, as he laid down his life for us. To, as a conscious act, give of ourselves giving where it is absolutely so difficult, not simply giving in a way that simply reinforces our natural, normal personality type, but in this radical way that we see in him. And the wonder of it all is that even wherein we fail, it is still true that the Son of God loved me and gave himself, same word, commending your spirit, laying down life, the Son of God loved me, and gave himself, gave out that last breath for me.